Hey, I'm Lee from Dublin, Ireland. I'm Nick, Showtime Bellata from Rhode Island. I'm Blake from Oakland, California. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. The writer Juno Diaz is my guest on the show. When we say, who do we idolize? I wasn't a kid who idolized sports figures. I didn't idolize movie stars. I didn't idolize historical figures. I kind of was in awe of my librarian. The idea that there was an institution where young kids could come in and take books out, the same as adults, and be responsible for books, that just was just such a gift. It's Bullseye. Coming up, my conversation with Juno Diaz, who came to the States from the Dominican Republic as a kid. I always think that my writing is an attempt for me to understand what immigration makes explicit. Then all of us have to figure out ways to stitch together multiple worlds into some semblance of a whole. Diaz has a book of short stories out now in paperback. It's called This Is How You Lose Her. Juno's book is new, but the protagonist, Junior, isn't. This is the third time Diaz has written about him. Juno admits that it's just as easy to love Junior as it is to hate him. For me, the idea wasn't that I wanted anyone to be for or against him, but I did want to put front and center the sort of garbage that he's responsible for. Then my interview with the actress Carrie Fisher. She'll talk about what it's like to play one of the most recognizable characters in movie history. You know, it's Princess Leia's famous. I just really, really look like her. I mean, not so much anymore, but I really, really used to. Fisher was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and she treated it with electroshock therapy. It gives you a place to move on from, and I've never said that before, but that, that is what it is. We'll talk later on in the show. Plus, the hosts of My Brother, My Brother, and Me answer listeners' pressing pop culture problems. Ian Cohen introduces us to a couple of great new heavy records. And in the wake of The Accidental Racist, I'll tell you about a record that mixed country and hip-hop to the benefit of both. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Stick around. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Juno Diaz's books have won pretty much all of the awards. Seriously like all of them, from the Pulitzer and the MacArthur on down. His first was a story collection called Drown, and the second a novel called The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow. His most recent is This Is How You Lose Her. It's a sort of half-novel, half-story collection about Junior, the subject of his first book and the narrator of his second. Junior is, like Diaz, a Dominican immigrant to the United States, raised in New Jersey near a landfill. Junior's also a cheater. The stories in This Is How You Lose Her each circle around a romantic relationship, and they're almost all destroyed by Junior himself. The tricky bit here is that Junior is so eloquent and his language is so evocative that you're swept into his story. Even when he seems to be narrating from the second or the third person, he holds you so close that you almost want to get in the line of women who are, we know, the reader, about to be wronged. Um, Juno Diaz, it's so great to have you on Bullseye. Thanks for thanks for joining me on the show. No, thank you so much for having me. One of the stories in here about uh, Junior is the story of him coming to the United States. And not when I say coming to the United States, I don't mean the journey to the United States, but I mean just sort of being plopped in a house in New Jersey with a father that he doesn't really know um, because his father has finally uh, earned enough to, to bring his family uh, to the States. Um, do you remember when you came to the United States? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, of course. It was December 1974. I was six years old, and uh, snow was on the ground, and New York looked like nothing I'd ever seen. Does it snow in the DR? Nah, man. We don't, I don't think we even get—I mean, I don't even think we get cold days. I don't think anything lower than 70 ever. What what was it like to what was it like to to arrive not just in a new country but in a place where you know it's like an it, it, to have the weather be that different and to have snow on the ground it must be like sort of like an alien world. Yeah, no, I I would argue that that would be one an accurate way of looking at it. The other thing, of course, is remember I was six years old, and so what happens there is that you don't have enough years under your belt to think that this might be different for other people. When I was six and going through the experience living in New Jersey, arriving in New Jersey and settling in in New Jersey, I assumed this is what happens to a lot of people. 
It was only a couple of years later that I began to realize what an, you know, kind of an exceptional experience this was. Now, of course, lots of folks immigrate. Um, but in my mind, I thought this is what always happens when you're six. You're always torn away from your home country and brought somewhere completely alien. Was there like a buildup to it in your family? Was it that your was the story that was told to you by your mom and, and your other relatives in the DR always were going to the United States? The United States is, you know, the streets are paved with cheese, as they say in uh, an American tale. Yeah, no, there wasn't that sense that um, that uh, you know, as a kid, you don't understand things as well. There was a sense that you were going to the states, and yes, that the states were better. Um, you know, qualitatively better. But there was almost, I have to tell you, there was no transition from the promise to the realization. When my father finally sent for us, my mom actually didn't prepare us. She didn't mention it. She just said, hey, we're going to go on another little car trip. And we just assumed we were going to go visit our relatives uh, a couple towns over. But the next thing we know, we're at the airport. And the next thing we know, we're in New Jersey. So it was like a super shocker. In those days, you got to understand, this was the, the generation of parents who didn't think that talking to kids was a good idea, that having conversations with kids was a good idea. Did you, did your family, did you and your family have status, immigration status? Uh, mm, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's a tricky question. I think, um, let's just say, I, I've always been on record to say that my father... Um, was an undocumented immigrant. And I think beyond that, um, I, I don't say much more. Uh, I myself am a naturalized U.S. citizen, but my father was definitely undocumented. You know, one of the things that I, I was thinking about was, as I, as I was reading your book, This Is How You Lose Her, is the relationship um, between, you know, the the book in, in some ways is about struggling to reconcile with and deal with past experience in terms of the future. Um, and that is also a big part of the immigrant experience generally, that you have this line in your life where you went to a whole new place. Um, and especially if you, and especially if, you know, if you don't have uh, immigration status and you literally can't go back, um, and I, I wonder if, if that means anything to you. Well, I just what I've sort of connected with with a lot of my friends is how many of us have this experience of dislocation. I think that um, usually people think of us as the abnormal, but I always think that the people who stay in one place, who have endless continuity, I feel like they're the rare people. Um, me and my friends, I think, across the board shared this. And, uh, you know, this is kind of, again, like I said, this for many of us because we don't have another world to compare it to. I've never thought of it as um, anything that's besides how kooky it is, how hard it is. I didn't think of it in relationship to anything else because think about it. I didn't have another life to compare it to. I knew this was hard. I knew that it was a challenge. Um, I knew that some other people didn't have to go through this, but I didn't have that full sense of what it really meant um, till much, much later or begin to have a sense of what it meant. I always think that my writing is an attempt for me to understand what immigration makes explicit, that all of us are refugees or migrants from somewhere, that all of us have history whether it's invisible or palpable that weighs upon us, all of us have to figure out ways to stitch together multiple worlds into some semblance of a whole. All of us have to deal with the stories that have motivated and sort of mobilized our families and understand and try to find a space in those stories for ourselves, whether it's through rejection or reinventing or by embracing them. And I think that that's, for me, the core of the immigrant narrative is that the immigrant narrative is simply the standard default narrative of most people's experience just made more explicit, made more stark, uh, made more dramatic. It's Bullseye, and I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the writer Juno Diaz about his collection of short stories out now in paperback. It's called This Is How You Lose Her. Juno brought back one of his beloved characters, Junior, from his earlier books. There are these passing references through the book to the to the narrator Junior and his 
love of reading. And it, it occurred to me that, you know, one of the things about reading literature is that it takes you to a world that is, you know, both familiar to you and that it's human and unfamiliar to you in that it's not your world. And that is, all, that is uh, in some ways, like the a reflection of the immigrant experience. No, no question. I think that having survived and seen for all its hardship the value of traveling between worlds, I became a fanatic of those narratives. I mean, for me, reading was a way to not only enter the world I was living in, but also to enter others and also to find myself in these multiple worlds. I think that, listen, when you see that you can, what you learn from shifting worlds is extraordinary. And there was a part of me in reading that made sense. There was a part of me in reading that felt accompanied and inspired. And there's a part of me that, through the process of reading, was able to find a home. And I think that this is nothing new. And certainly the immigrant experience as a metaphor is extremely useful. It's uh, extremely mobile. What books did you read as a kid that had a really big effect on you? Oof, I read everything, man. I read... In those days, you got to remember that... uh, the kids' book industry and the young adult industry wasn't as colossally developed as it is now. Now, my God, I think those are the publishers, the only publishers that are healthy. But when I was a kid, I read everything. They were balderized sort of kids' versions of all the Edgar Allan Poe stories, of all the sort of Arthurian romances. Um, even Alfred Hitchcock had a series of books they're called The Three Investigators, about these three kids who kind of were, you know, private eyes, living. Their base was in a landfill, which made a lot of sense to me growing up near a landfill. Um, I read, you know, when I was younger, I read all the Sherlock Holmes stories. Again, these were kids' versions of them. I loved a British uh, children's writer, Enid Blyton. She, her books were still in our library because our library had a lot of old books, you know, Um, I mean, these books all had enormous impact. I mean, it's funny because I still dream of books that I read whose titles I can't remember. And uh, I just loved the idea of the library. I adored my librarian. She, to me, was um, when we say, who do we idolize? I wasn't a kid who idolized sports figures. I didn't idolize movie stars. I didn't didn't idolize historical figures. I kind of was in awe of my librarian. The idea that there was an institution where young kids could come in and take books out the same as adults and be responsible for books, that just was just such a gift, such a gift. So I, like, took part of that whole reading world, and that reading world was perhaps the most important and positive experience of most of my youth. You know, one of the stories in the book, this is this is how you lose her, is about Junior uh, semi-falling for a neighbor who's six or seven years older and always tells him to go to college. And uh, oh, no, she's more than six or seven years older. Oh, okay. <laughs> she's like twenty years older than him, and uh, he sleeps with her a whole bunch of times. Yeah, this is a young again. This is the a relationship that happens quite often. I mean, I'm not saying in huge numbers, but happens quite often. Uh, where it's not just, you know, underage gals sleeping with older guys. You'll actually see the exact opposite, where adults are preying on. And again, preying is a tough word, but sometimes we've got to be a little hard. It's adults taking advantage of underage youth and uh, forming sort of, you know, sexual relationships with them, which is, you know, of course, in our country, highly illegal. But when it happens to a boy at the hands of an older woman, I think there's a lot of winks and kind of nudges. You know, people tend to think, oh, this is just, this is just, look, he's lucky. Look what happened to him. Give him an award. But I do think that relationships like these tend to damage, especially for my narrator, my protagonist in the story, clearly has an effect on his ability to create intimate relations. Yeah, well, tell me about why you wanted to include, I mean, to include a story about, about something like that in, in the book. Well, because it happens, and it's certainly I was familiar with it, I and mean, this is... But, I mean, Juno, lots of different things happen. I mean, there's hovercrafts in real life, which are pretty amazing. Sure. They can go on land or water, but there's no stories about hovercrafts in your book. Right, but what I'm saying is that this is a story, this is a book that is all about the way a young person's ideas about intimacy come 
to bear fruit in his adult life. And I think that, you know, in a community like the one that Junior lives in, where people tend to you know, betray other people's boundaries all the time, this is sort of another example of the kind of boundary, you know, um, disruption that deeply deeply, deeply can affect you. And so for me, it was just uh, something that I was inspired to do. And therefore, I thought it was really, really kind of rich material. I mean, again, so many of my male friends have had the same exact experiences. And so, you know, it was something that we always kept quiet and that we didn't talk about much. And every now and then we'll come out when we were drinking. And um, a lot of my friends for all the kind of celebratory ha 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 ha, a lot of my friends, you know, it's something that really kind of troubled them when they were young. And uh, I just felt that it was worthy of talking about. It just felt like a natural, it felt like a natural adjunct to all the things that Junior's going through. After a break, more with Juno Diaz, and I'll try to find out whether Junior is really just his alter ego. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne, the host of Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is now airing on KPCC. That means Southern Californians can turn on their radios and hear the show every Saturday afternoon. That's cause for celebration, right? So join me at the Crawford Family Forum for a live taping of Bullseye. I'll sit down with Saturday Night Live alumnus Bill Hader, plus a bunch of other very special guests, including music and comedy. Friday night, October 25th at KPCC's Crawford Family Forum in Pasadena. For more information and tickets, go to kpcc.org slash forum. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the Dominican-American author Juno Diaz. He's won both a MacArthur Genius Grant and a Pulitzer Prize for his work. His collection of short stories is called This Is How You Lose Her. Juno brought back one of his beloved characters, Junior, from his earlier books. I went to a public high school in the city that uh, you had to audition to get into, and I really recognized this girlfriend that Junior has in high school, who is a girl who is in this really precarious situation, and all like her, all she really knows, her real guiding light, is she can't do anything that would mess up her life because if she messes up even one thing, that will send her on a downward trajectory rather than an upward trajectory. Yeah, yeah, man. Whether it was the women I knew coming up um, or my sisters, it was real evident to a lot of girls who wanted to get the hell out that the best way to get stuck in the neighborhood was to mess with dudes, to fall in love with them, to mess with them. You know, I mean, it was amazing when I was in high school how many young women's plans for their future were derailed because of the quote-unquote love because, quote-unquote, of a relationship. And the same wasn't so true for a lot of the guys I know, but maybe that's the case as well, that I just wasn't as aware. But my God, man, my two of my best friends in high school and my younger sister were completely on that track. They were like, there is no dude and no love in the world worth me being stuck in this darn place. And other things, too, uh, above and beyond love. I mean, it's just that there are... Uh, I think people fail to recognize... The extent to which the the stakes are different um, when you're poor, yeah. When when you're poor, or, or 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 any other, you know, you lack any other kind of social privilege. Sure, but I mean, I think the 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 point of that the book makes is that, um, and I think this is a very important point that's really worth making is that listen, um, you know, one of the things that they have done a ton of studies of young women in colleges, and that young women in colleges. Uh, if they're single, their grades are higher than if they're dating. That most of the time that we get dropouts, the women aren't dropping out of college because of their grades. They're dropping out of college because of their relationships. And you're not seeing the same thing happening um, with our male students. And I think that, yes, of course, no, having being under-resourced is terrible for university success. But there's also real important gender questions about how you know, boys and girls are being asked to value their careers over their interpersonal relationships. And I think, as you well know, most boys in the community that I was raised in were socialized not to value their interpersonal relationships at all. And most of the girls were told whether they accepted it or not, were socialized to value them. And I guess that's sort of the thing that you know, kind of Junior was sort of pointing at in that was that, um, you know, 
there's a real different burden burden in these communities of outcomes. You know, he's just kind of traipsing around the world, like there's no consequences. But his girlfriend, Paloma, is like, "Yo, one mistake, and I'm stuck here with you, and I don't want that." I want to ask you about what Junior is pointing to, because as I think I alluded to in in my introduction, you. You can't write a novel, or, or in this case, a sort of a series of novels and short stories, which is what you've written and, and plan to write about this character, without having incredible sympathy and empathy for the protagonist. And it's real hard to do it without having sympathy and empathy for the protagonist in, in your readers, um, you know, generating that. Um, but at the same time, you know, this is a book that is is largely about Junior's just brutal behavior. Um, and I wonder how you thought about that going in and um, and and why you chose to write this as, as your second book uh, about this character. Well, because I think that there's uh, a second narrative. I think that, look, my strategy around this was sort of straightforward, which was that we kind of are in a moment, a cultural moment where Everybody does everything possible to expose themselves. If you stubbed your toe, you're like, I want to write a memoir about it. You know, we're in the this, the spirit of the age. The zeitgeist is overwhelmingly confessional. What I find interesting about Junior and what I found interesting about organizing this book is that instead of putting forward all of the awful stuff that Junior endures as sort of putting emphasis on that. What I put emphasis on is all the terrible stuff that Junior does to other people and have the story of, you know, the way that he gets broken again and again, sort of just drifting or sort of just in the background. And so, therefore, I thought what was fascinating about him is that I did not want to make him in any way a victim, in no possible way, but I also didn't want to make him solely a perpetrator. But I do think that what matters for a story that's about the way certain kinds of masculinity and the way patriarchy affects certain kinds of young men of color coming up in central Jersey, immigrant, Latino, African descent, is that I wanted to show him in a much more complex light. For me, the idea wasn't that I wanted anyone to be for or against him, but I did want to put front and center the sort of garbage that he's responsible for. It's Bullseye, and I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the writer Juno Diaz about his collection of short stories out now in paperback. It's called This Is How You Lose Her. You know, you listed a, a lot of specifics about Junior that you also share, um, and I wonder to what extent um, his issues are your issues. Oh, no. The best part about this stuff is, as you well know, if, I don't know if you have more than one kid, you well know the same darn material um, mixed the same damn way generates absolutely different results. And I think of Junior as someone who I took a lot of the same materials of me, mixed them, and he's just this weirdly different character. I mean, certainly I am interested and I myself have wrestled with in- issues of masculinity, issues of intimacy, issues of um, sort of how do you form a relationship with a woman in a hypersexualized, over-masculine, heterosexual culture that tells you to be a winner as a man, you can't be too vulnerable. Therefore, if you're not vulnerable, there's no possible way you can be intimate. That sort of paradox and contradiction. These things, of course, they're, I'm very interested in, but I'm interested in them in a very different way than Junior is. At least Junior is a metaphor, a very, very estranged familial metaphor that allows me to address issues that I'm interested in, but in an orthogonal way. It's really true. I mean, I, I think that if, if Junior was here next to sitting right next to me, it would be striking how different we are. I mean, it just, I always imagined him as so much more solitary than I am, um, so much more cut off, uh, so much more brooding, so much more brilliant and um, honest and cruel and deceptive than I could ever be. In some ways, he's not just heightened, but he's also profoundly, profoundly troubled. And certainly, I'm troubled, but I made him troubled in ways that I never am. You know, there was this, there was this article in Slate, I think it was not that long ago, about 
what it's like to be a feminist dude who or man who uh, looks at women on the street and wants to do it with them. Um, and one of the things that um, one of the things that made me uncomfortable about the book was um, how much I related to um, Junior looking at a woman and being like, "Oh man, that's a you know she has a great rear." Um, as a, somebody who's been married since you know I've been married, I've been with my wife since we were seventeen. Um, you know, fifteen years, almost half my life, and well, congratulations, and, man. Yeah, I'm pretty great. Ah, I'm, um, sure, I'm sure she might be a little great too. <laughs> she's awesome. She's the best. Um, but it, you know, it is such. It's such a powerful. Um, you know, it's such a powerful force within. I don't know within my life, um, and it's something that. Uh, it's something that people who feel conflicted about it rarely feel comfortable talking about it. Well, and also there's, look, we often think of it, I, I've, I, my experience is that we often don't think of it in the ways that would be, that I think would be helpful for a fuller discussion. I mean, I think the the argument that I would make with Junior is that I would argue that it is impossible for the beneficiaries of masculine privilege to be feminist, that it's impossible, that you can claim feminism all you want, and you can claim that you don't access the privileges of masculinity, privileges of patriarchy, but as long as you are embedded in those privileges, um, there's no possible way that you can express, that you can embody the solidarity that is required to be a feminist. Now, I think that men, in my take, and in certain feminist take who I agree with, I think that men can be... um, sort of, uh, you know, can have feminist-aligned projects. Yeah, but I think it's important for us to recognize that no matter what our personal claims are, that we are in a system that over-inscribes us with our privileges. And one has to recognize that, yes, we're capable of standing apart and capable of making a stand, but also that there's ways that we benefit from this system, even when we are refusing service in the system. And I think that that's why, for me, Junior is sort of like someone who I constantly return to, because Junior's less... I think that... <laughs> I always think that he's far more clear that, you know, whether you're a good boy who's married for, you know, X amount of years and who's never stepped out, or you're a bad boy who screws up all his relationships. The truth is both of you are wired into a, you know, patriarchal uh, matrix that disconnects you from women in profound ways. And that it's only when we disrupt this out of the collective that individuals can truly be emancipated in the way that we dream. Did you feel like you had to uh, have your narrator, you had to make sure that, that you and your, your narrator caught an L uh, by the end of the book, uh, like a big one, uh, to make sure that everyone knew, like, just so you know, I'm not cool with his behavior either? Nah, because that hasn't made any difference. People are still saying, <laughs> you. people are still writing very strongly worded critiques um, publicly in magazines online saying this is just a celebration of this kind of insane behavior, which is goes to show goes to show that if you write something complexly enough, even when, as you said, you have kind of a tendentious narrative, um, people read against it. And that's what I love about Junior. Even though at the end, Junior is absolutely taken apart by his behavior there's still a whole lot of people who read it, and they're just like, nope. This is like bald face, sexist, claptrap nonsense, and this is just an endorsement of this kind of lunacy, a celebration of this kind of lunacy. And I think that that's, that's, that's why we write, man. I like love writing to achieve that complexity and to create the space so that people can misread the book from my perspective because anyone's reading is their own and I think as a writer, what you have to do is built into your book the ability for there to be multiplicitous interpretations of your own work. I want to do one thing, which is we have this piece of music here 
um, and then I'm going to have my engineer, Nick, bring in um, to our conversation. All right. Basil. Yes. This is uh, the opening it's... scene, the opening flourish to Basil Polidaris' Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> Do you, did you really listen to this over and over while you were writing your first book? On a loop, my son, on a loop. Did it, like, give you Conan the Barbarian-like writing powers? No, man, it's just that, come on, Polidaris is just a genius, and it's so classic. And when you're really, 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 really tired, sometimes you've got to gird for battle with Krom at your back, man. (laughs) Well, Juno, I I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on Bullseye. Yeah, man, thank you guys so much for having me. Juno Diaz's new book is called This Is How You Lose Her. It's out in paperback and in an absolutely gorgeous uh, edition um, illustrated by Jaime Hernandez of Love and Rockets. Um, So, you know, you can get it on the cheap or uh, you can get the perfect version right now. Thanks again, Juno. Thank you, man. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Bullseye turns to an expert every week to talk about the good stuff in popular culture. And right now I'm joined by Ian Cohen. He's a writer for Pitchfork and Grantland. And we're going to be talking about one of his specialties, heavy music. Hey, Ian, how's it going? It's going all right today. How's about you? Doing all right. Ian, your first pick is uh, from an artist named Jay Zoo. The album is Every Day I Get Closer to the Light from Which I Came. Let's, let's take a listen to a little bit of a song called Homesick. This band is actually a solo project. It is. Uh, from a somewhat legendary artist. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, Justin Broderick was um, originally in bands like Napalm Death for a little while. And, uh, you know, the main thing that he did was uh, a band called Godflesh, which in the 90s was one of the first like, heavy, heavy metal, sort of extreme metal acts to really incorporate a lot of outside sounds, like whether it's industrial or techno and um, that's where the sound that you hear right there where it's kind of the drum the electronic drum machine and the heavy guitars uh, that's where they started to take shape Jesu has become a very influential act uh, amongst a lot of bands you hear today who are working within kind of the extreme metal realm but by the same token trying to make it a little more accessible so it can reach beyond you know the extreme metal fan though it kind of finds people at the kind of edge of both pop and metal Let's talk about your next pick from an artist named Tim Hecker. Mm-hmm. Um, his new album is called Virgins, and let's take a little bit uh, of a listen to the song, Virginal 2. So this song sounds like something halfway in between, the, you know, the soundtrack of a Halloween movie and a chamber music concert of a piece by Steve Reich. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. Like, I, I laugh when you said, like, song. I mean, like, there, there aren't, these are like pieces, <laughs> like, more than songs. As a matter of fact, like, the, the record itself is, you know, the fact it's called Virginal 2, it's meant to be 
heard as a single piece. But um, you know, this is what what Tim Hecker does uh, for me. Uh, you know, and it, it, it is a soundtrack, but it's meant to be its own sort of movie in a way. The reason like Tim Hecker has become so well known is that he makes a lot of ambient and drone music that really can't be used for background. He's like one of the few I've been able to see live and um, played at like a, like a music festival with like thousands of people. And it was like right when it was about to rain in Chicago in July. And it was like he was, you know, it was music that wasn't all that uh, far removed from what you're hearing right there. And it felt like he was conjuring that rain. Ian Cohen recommends Tim Hecker's new album, Virgins, as well as Jesus' Every Day I Get Closer to the Light from Which I Came. You can find Ian's writing on Pitchfork and Grantland. Thanks again, Ian. Thank you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Culture is full of thorny thickets, and so once in a while we like to invite the guys from the podcast My Brother, My Brother, and Me to help us through said thickets of thorns. Uh, Justin McElroy, Travis McElroy, and Griffin McElroy are our advice guys. Uh, hey, dudes, how's it going? Good. Jesse, Jesse when, are we, when can we expect to hear your family podcast, A Patch of Thorns? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely never. By the way, how's your family podcast going, Mr. Jokes a lot? <laughs> <laughs> Got you there. Um, let's get into some questions about pop culture etiquette. Here's something from Dan. How do I get the point across to my coworkers that I don't care about Duck Dynasty? I work closely with these people. I need to avoid making them mad. Uh, grow a beard. And tell them that you're related and you don't find it funny in the least. I think the better question, you have to ask yourself, what did you do in the first place that made them think you were interested in Duck Dynasty? That's the problem. People stop feigning interest in Duck Dynasty. You got to commit to it and mean it. Are you suggesting that Duck Dynasty is a sort of like a shared hype loop that just started when there was a show named Duck Dynasty and people mm -hmm. thought it was a funny name and then no one wanted to admit that they don't like it? The most amazing act of, of salesmanship that ever occurred is the first person convincing the second person to watch Duck Dynasty. If we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. I want nail polish on my nail. Get the nail polish out. I guess just give them a long embrace and say, like, I'm here to we're, set you free. We're going to get through this together. <laughs> Take this blue pill, and I'm going to take you to the world where we don't have to lie to each other anymore. Here's a question from John. How many comic book movies are too many comic book movies? Six. Next question. That was easy. Um, is Darkman based on a comic book? Because I would go to the mat for Darkman, but that's about it. <laughs> other than there is no other superhero movie that Justin would justify owning except Darkman. Should have stopped after Howard the Duck industry. Mm -hmm. you, you were going, things were going so well. That's it. No more Mr. Nice Duck. James and the Giant Peach. That was a good one. Uh, that was not based on a comic book. I think it was just based on a peach <laughs> that Roald Dahl ate once. He was like, this is a, this is a killer peach. I've got to get... ex expand this universe. So I think that answers your question. Here's a question from Lauren. Brothers, give us the final word on vinyl. Are they the superior listening experience or just a device for the musically pretentious? I don't see why that has to be mutually exclusive. Uh, vinyl is sort of like grandparents. Mm. Sure, they're old. Does that make them <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> and if you scratch a needle across your grandparents, they'll play Muddy Waters. What? The problem is once you once you start a vinyl collection, you have to buy a hundred vinyls at once because if your vinyl collection consists of six vinyls and three of them are Lionel Richie records um, mm -hmm. that you bought as a joke, then people are going to think that you're some sort of savant. People are going to start calling you Vinyl Richie, and that's a nickname you're not going to want to stick. <laughs> I actually prefer uh, the sound quality of a nice player piano. <laughs> Justin Griffin and Travis comprise the McElroy brothers. They host the smash hit podcast, My Brother, My Brother, and Me. You can get it for free in iTunes or with whatever program you use to listen to podcasts, or you can grab it on the web at our website, MaximumFun.org. Don't pirate us. <laughs> we'll know. Oh, no.
It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Cameron Esposito, the host of Wham Bam Pow. This is an action and sci-fi movie podcast on MaximumFun.org. We talk about punching. We talk about car chases. We talk about uh, arms, muscles that are on arms. And every week I'm joined by panelist Rhea Butcher. That's me. And, of course, also... Ricky Carmona. Oh, I'm all up in it. That's what's up. The Afro spokesman. We are going to give you all of the jokes and all of the happiness and all of the information that you need to watch action and sci-fi films to the fullest. Mm. Find it at MaximumFun.org or you can subscribe on iTunes. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Carrie Fisher started her life as the child of literally America's sweethearts, the singer Eddie Fisher and the actress Debbie Reynolds. She was a successful professional actress by the time she left her teenage years, but also, if I'm perfectly frank, she was kind of a mess. She's transformed her life over the past 20 years or so with best-selling novels and memoirs and an autobiographical stage show called Wishful Drinking. That show later became a best-selling book and an HBO special. Her most recent book is called Shockaholic. It's about family and death and fame and all kinds of intense stuff. We spoke in 2011, shortly after the release of that book. You write in this in the new book, uh, Shockaholic, about spending some time with uh, Michael Jackson, right? At what turned out to be the very end of his life. And yes. one of the things that you wrote very movingly, I thought, about was... Your perception of him as someone who was defined by the outside world before he was able to define himself? Yes. And like a a few pages later, there are these photo spreads of covers of tabloid magazines with you and your brother and your mom on them. Right. uh, When you're like four years old. Oh, less. I was photographed for the first time when I was six months old. From a good angle. And so... No, six hours. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it feels, like, it feels like maybe one of the reasons you were able to relate to that problem that Michael had being a, a performer, you know, starting from six or seven, was that you were... You had a public persona before you had a, a defined private persona. I don't think there was anything private. In, in our lives at that point. I mean, we were sort of... Actually, not the willing Kardashians of the 50s, but, you know, there was it was that kind of um, focus on uh, the family and the drama surrounding it. And uh, I don't know. So, yeah, I was... My parents were, I guess, Hollywood royalty. And, and so that means, by definition, you're associated with these sort of, quote-unquote, special people, so you're going to be special. But how... You started performing with your mom when you were uh, a teenager. Was it because you wanted to be a performer or no, just because you wanted I to hang out with your mom? <laughs> no, I didn't want to do it. It was just our way of having a family outing was to go to ni- do work nightclub work in Vegas. I mean, that was the only way to stay to get, for us to see our mom was if you want to hang out, we we got to do it on stage. You... um you started acting professionally as uh, just in your older teenage years. I think you were you were seventeen when you made shampoo, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, how did you How did you end up on that path, having seen the price associated with it? I thought I was. It was a goof. I thought I was seventeen years old. Um, my, we had a house guest who was uh, George Firth, who was a writer who wrote the book of company and other things of theater writer. And he was friends with Warren Beatty. And he was also, he had a scene in shampoo as well. And there was a part for a young girl in it. And he brought me on the set one day as kind of a goof, a gag. I wasn't an actress. I didn't have an agent. I wasn't trying to be one. And so I just did this one day's work on shampoo one day. And then I went up uh, on a, one job interview, one job interview after that, which was for two movies at the same time. Brian De Palma was casting Carrie and George Lucas was casting Star Wars. And I got one of the jobs. <laughs> I mean, it, it's hard to imagine the idea of falling into 
something that became one of the most significant cultural products of the 20th century in the world. Product being the operative word. Yeah, I, it's like I'm Minnie Mouse. Uh, but I, you know, it's Princess Leia's famous. I just really, really look like her. I mean, not so much anymore, but I really, really used to. I think that now when uh, studios make a monster blockbuster film, uh, they intend for it to be a monster blockbuster film. Like, I, I don't think that um, you know, John Torturo uh, didn't know what he was signing up for when he signed up for Transformers 2 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1977, the idea of a monster blockbuster film didn't barely exist. even existed. Yeah. Right. And uh, I wonder if you liked that uh, this movie became this, like a thing bigger than any pop culture thing had ever been in the United States or or at least had ever been in, you know, since Gone with the Wind or something. I wonder if I liked it, too. Um, (laughs) At the time, I was 19. I mean, and all that implies. I didn't have a lot of... I had weird life experience. I had done nightclub work, but I hadn't been in the world that much, not in any sort of, you know, uh, well, a predictable way. Anyway, it was fun. It was a goof. It was amazing. It was... I thought it would be some kind of cool little, like you know, a hip film that showed in the village. But then it, like, as I, like, it misbehaved. It did this whole other thing. You were already using by the time you were in Star Wars, right? Mm, Pot was really, I mean, I wasn't uh, well in. My my use was so fast and furious. Um, No, but a pot only. And then it had turned on me by then. I, you know, I, I stopped laughing and getting the munchies and started thinking, oh, my God, what did I just say? How stupid was that? Which I still do to this day, but without pot. Um, and so I had to find another drug after that. It's Bullseye. My guest is Carrie Fisher. You likely know her as an actress, but she's also written novels, doctored screenplays, and penned memoirs. She and I spoke in 2011. It was shortly after the release of her book, Shockaholic. The memoir is about how she treated her bipolar disorder and addiction problems with electroshock therapy. When I see you on screen in uh, the last Star Wars movie or in the Blues Brothers, which is uh, uh, one of my favorite films and probably my favorite performance I've ever seen you give, Oh, thank you. Uh, um, there's, there's an edge. There's, there feels like there's something really hard underneath. Um, and I wonder if I'm making that up in my brain or if, if that really existed. An edge, like what sort of edge? You seem much, angry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you I se- wasn't. I was having my life had gotten more complex by then. I was. 20. <laughs> no, I was 21. And I had started dating Paul Simon. And then we broke up and I started dating Danny. And so that was the first time in my life that I'd ever been involved in a kind of a soap opera, amazing situation. And take acid. <laughs> <laughs> to help me, you know, deal with it. <laughs> Did taking acid help you deal with it? Or no, you know, it? we were the other last night I was with a friend and we were sort of saying, can you imagine Kim Kardashian taking acid like right now and, you know, coming across like all the, you know, <laughs> looking in the mirror and going, oh my God, I'm Kim Kardashian. Uh, I did take acid for the first time on the Blues Brothers movie and yeah, it was I was Princess Leia, but it was good that I did that. I just never, uh, I never really, uh, it was a very good thing to have. I mean, I'm not recommending this at all, so I shouldn't talk about this anymore. But um, it was probably good that I did do that. One of the things about um, the uh, the ECT, the uh, uh, electroconvulsive therapy that gives the uh, uh, that lends that lends the name to your book, Shockaholic, is that it removes chunks of your memory and makes other parts of your memory inconsistent? Well, you you, you go three times a week for three weeks. And at that point, if someone wrote and said, I had so much fun last night at dinner, you would just think, I have no clue what you're talking about. But that certainly was only 
that way for that time. So that's that was not that that's nothing, but it's you know it was four months where it just eliminate things would happen, and that was that was it. They did not go into any kind of file that you could refer back to. But later on, now I I have a lot of trouble remembering movies I've seen. In fact, I can see them over and over again though, which isn't that great. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and sometimes even with books, the same is true. I'll be reading and thinking, oh, oh, this is familiar. But I can be, you know, entertained. But it doesn't, I don't know what my memory, you know, which part of my memory has been affected by electroconvulsive therapy or LSD ingestion or getting older or blah. One of the things that I've read you describing, one of the feelings that I've read you describing having after having ect is that it breaks up the concrete that sets in your mind it totally it, it seems like it's almost in a way it, it feels almost like like a reset button like you, I, it gives you a place to move on from and i've never said that before but that it, that is what it is yes reset would be good um, a, a close relative of mine was, um, recently diagnosed as, as bipolar, somebody I, I is, who's very important to me. And, um, it's something that you've dealt with since you were diagnosed in your mid twenties. And I wonder how you see that it's affected your life and what, what you've seen that has helped you best helped you live a good life despite slash because of it well i just i really have to be mindful of things and it turns out that's actually a good book but, but it it is a state of mind of being mindful of being uh uh aware of where you are when you are um being manic depressive um has you know it's affected a lot of things, but you don't what you don't want to do is make it sort of like the excuse of well you know I can't help you know I'm self medicating I'm not a drug addict you know it can't be your your kind of alibi for everything but uh, I what it has done for me that's been fantastic is it has made me pursue so many different ways of uh, taking care of my you know of going. All go through all these ridiculous things of just est and rebirthing and all these like, you know, going into the taking the peyote in the desert with the guy and the two weeks in the, you know, verbal and, and food fast in the desert. And, you know, I just did all of these things, shrinks and, and, and 12, everything in order to some way there. I knew there wasn't one answer to so to look for so many different, you know, ways to arm myself against, you know, an inevitable incoming mood influx. So that, that, that inadvertently then helped a lot of other areas. Carrie Fisher, we spoke in 2011. Her most recent book, now in paperback, is Shockaholic. We like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. In 2001, Bubba Sparks had a huge hit. You might remember it from MTV. It was called Ugly. It was the only hip-hop hit of the era by an overweight white guy, if that helps jog your memory. It sounded like this. In the video, Sparks wrestled a pig in a mud pit as flashes of what I guess you might call country America flickered across the screen. It was sort of half celebrating, half mocking. Sparks was a solid rapper, and the track was produced by Timbaland, a genuine legend who was at the top of his game, but there was something a little sour about it. Despite Sparks' talent, it felt like a novelty. And when the follow-up didn't hit, it seemed like maybe it was. Except, no. It wasn't. 
Sparks and Timbaland went back to the lab after that first record and recorded one of the most audacious hip-hop albums I've ever heard. And one of the best. Any blood shed for a cause that deserves it It's blood well worth it, we fought to preserve it You caught him in person, you know Bubba psyched out You hate it when they talk, but love it when I shout Oh, why I doubt that you really can When I get to doing my hillbilly dance A step to the left, then two back to the right Take a shot of Patron and then get back to the mic Yeah, I'm rapping tonight, but soon as the light hit I'm all about the green, man, to hell with this white dish Unless it's that white dish, to speed up your pulse rate Some cardiac arrest, so sweet with a dull taste Just what they must face I'm gonna be right here, spitting these flames out and drinking Bud Light beer to the cows home and the dogs quit barking. Daddy, tell them who I am and don't beg no pardons. Jim and Mathis, please come out here. Like so much great hip hop, the record that Sparks made is an act of self definition. He was a rural kid, he grew up with his closest neighbor a few miles away. But he also grew up rapping along to secondhand cassettes. There wasn't much Georgia hip hop then, but by the time he was in high school, Outcast were his heroes. The album he and Timbaland made is called Deliverance, and it's an unabashed testimony from a country kid in the big city, one who's wiser than his age and ready to tell you who he is. It was someone the hip-hop world hadn't heard from before. Timbaland was pushing into new ground, too. He combined his signature sort of bloopy, blurpy, futuristic sound with warm, organic, old-time country sounds. The result with songs like this one, which was the title track. I left out for mamas with my thumb in the wind. The leaves on the ground, winners coming again. Solid on the surface as I crumble within. But legends are made out of vulnerable men. So on the brink of death, I still manage living life. Because so rarely in this world are these chances given twice. I indeed sold my soul without glancing at the price. No instructions when I was handed this device. But with what I did get, I was more than generous. Put others over cell phone, several instances. But I'm back on my feet without a hint of bitterness. And one way or another, I shall have deliverance, so I say. The sound was so new that it would be easy to say that Deliverance is a producer's record. But the truth is that what defines the album is Sparks's voice. He's a deceptively dexterous rapper, but there are plenty of MCs with skills. It's the way he shows his heart that draws you in. I love her, but you never would know That by the way, I just let my girl go With tears in her eyes, from years of the lies She backed on up and disappeared out the drive Wait, hey, what can I say? All we had means nothing today I did my thing and she did hers But my crimes are a wee bit worse And now I'm sitting here all alone with my guilt Just me and the dogs in the home that we built It was Andy's and hers, even though Bubba bought it But Bubba wouldn't leave, just like a mother called it From the pink pony to the blue flame God forgive me for causing you pain All that was. Ain't no more cause my baby's gone and when it rains it pours. She White guys in hip-hop have to work twice as hard to earn their stripes, which maybe, given the history of white people and black music, is as it should be. To earn your authenticity as a white guy in rap music is a tough road to hoe. You can't snowball people, you can't sustain novelty. It takes a sort of radical honesty. By the end of Deliverance, Sparks has proven that he's more than the fat white guy from that video we remember. The last song's called Back in the Mud. It's a sort of riposte to the reductionist who can't see past the pig wrestling. A defiant riposte at that. The message is clear. This is a man who is who he is, and he's proud of every bit of it. And he can rhyme, too. Which is pretty inspiring, no matter who you happen to be. That's my own chat. Country boy, city slick, hip bull, temperament At the pony, at the flame, either way it's in the bend If it's me, consider it more than a coincidence Even though they mama let me suckers keep they distances Barber, K, hey, what's that they say? Hip hop, redneck, that's a safe place Say what makes you comfortable with me, cause I like it here How about a world dwelling, urban music pioneers Turn it up, let it bang, run with me, I bet you can't Took too much to make it flow, never will I let it sing So we reinvented it for all you degenerates Hoping that my moment passed, I can't see the end of it 25, living like I was born yesterday Loving life, doing right, earning every breath I take Standing in the mud again, cause it seemed to pay me well Playing with my not-so-distant cousins from the ATL ah! That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our outgoing intern is Henry Malofsky. Thank you, Henry. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. 
Bullseye's theme music is provided by the Go Team, thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. Thanks this week to NPR's New York Bureau for engineering help. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. If you have thoughts about the show, you can email me, jesse at MaximumFun.org, or you can post in our forums, forum.maximumfun.org. For those of you in Southern California, please do not miss our live show at KPCC's Crawford Family Forum Friday, October 25th. We'll have the great Bill Hader from Saturday Night Live, as well as stand-up comedy from Jasper Red and some other very, very special guests. Tickets are at kpcc.org slash forum. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.